Our first scripture comes from Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, send me. And also from Mark, the eighth chapter, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Send your word, O Lord, like the seated. It's my privilege to, to introduce our special speaker today for our Veterans Day celebration. Admiral, Rear Admiral Kent Davis is the State Commissioner for Veterans Affairs. He, um, he has been in the Navy, he's been in the Army, he's a lawyer, he's, uh, he's done all kinds of things. Um, prior to this uh, appointment, he was he was at Maxwell Air Force Base and, and had a, a, a very pre prestigious job, an important job there, um, Director of Communications. Prior to that, he ran the city of Anison as best, he's could, as best he could, a city manager. And that's where I got to know him. He was there, and then he was also before that at Fort McClellan. But when I was pastor of Anderson First Methodist, I, just, I didn't even know he was an admiral. I just knew he was a dad of two teenagers. And he was always volunteering to help stack up chairs or do whatever we needed him to do. He and his wife, Lisa, she, she was on our staff and worked at Camp Lee. And uh, we, they, they were just great church people. He even served on committees like SPRC, which is just a lot of fun. Um, he's a lifelong Methodist. Just, uh, and now in Montgomery, his family are members of the First United Methodist Church. I know that you'll be you'll be glad to hear him speak today. When I found out that uh, there were so many veterans here in our in our church, and of course uh, with Pastor Arthur, I thought, well, who better to come and speak to us on veterans as we celebrate Veterans Day than than Admiral Kent Davis? So help help me welcome him to our church. Thanks so much, Pastor Dale. Can you all hear me okay? Good. I looked at that, those pictures of me up there, and gosh, when I was a younger man, I looked so serious. I think as I got older, <laughs> I kind of mellowed out. I don't know if it's the difference between the Army or the Navy or an age thing, but I'm glad to be a lot more mellow in my older age. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here, and especially amongst some of the fellow veterans that I saw stand up. If you don't know this factoid, there are about 400,000 military veterans in the state of Alabama. Put that in perspective, that means that almost one in 10 Alabamians has served in the military. That's an incredible statistic. We have one of the highest per capita populations of military veterans in the entire United States, and I think that's something to be proud of. I want to leave you with this thought. My job as Commissioner of Veterans Affairs for the Alabama Department of Veterans Affairs is to take care of those 400,000 veterans including all of you that stood up today and your family. So if I can ever be of help or any of our 1,200 employees around the state, you please reach out to us. We'd be glad to help you with any of your needs, and I mean that sincerely. 
So on November 11th, we will pause as a nation to observe Veterans Day. With that in mind, I'd like to talk about what that day means, but even more about what it means to be a veteran and how military service fits into the Christian life. I hope that I can do those topics justice. I am a veteran of both the Army and the Navy, believe it or not. It's possible. And I finally retired after 30 years of military service in 2016 after deployments to places like Somalia and Afghanistan during times of war. As Pastor Dale mentioned, I do happen to be a lifelong Methodist, and I'm proud of that. My family has a long history of military service. My father was drafted into the Army in World War II when he was a freshman at Auburn University, even though it was called Alabama Polytechnic Institute at the time. And later, unfortunately, he was badly wounded in the Battle of the Bulge and lived with a disability the rest of his life. My wife completed 21 years of service in the Navy Reserve and retired as a lieutenant commander. And last but certainly not least, my father-in-law, now a retired Methodist minister, served as a chaplain in the Army Reserve, much like uh, your beloved Reverend Harrison. I'd like to begin with a little history of Veterans Day and its perhaps surprising origins right here in Alabama. A lot of people are not familiar with this story. It all started at the end of World War I, which was supposed to be, quote, the war to end all wars. My goodness, if only that had proven to be the case. About 4.7 million Americans served in the military during that war in the early part of the 20th century. The armistice ending World War I took place at 11 a.m. on November 11, 1918, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. That date quickly became known as Armistice Day, with President Woodrow Wilson proclaiming November 11, 1919, as the first official commemoration of Armistice Day in the United States. Armistice Day ceremonies also started in England and France, where an unknown soldier was buried in each nation's highest place of honor, in England at Westminster Abbey and in France at the Arc de Triomphe. These memorial ceremonies all took place on November 11th, giving universal recognition to the celebrated ending of World War I. On November 11, 1921, an unknown World War I American soldier was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. This site, on a hillside overlooking the Potomac River and the city of Washington, D.C., became a place of reverence for Americans' veterans. It's still there today. You may have seen the soldier marching at the tomb of the unknown soldier 24 hours a day. In 1938, 20 years after the end of World War I, Congress finally declared Armistice Day a legal holiday. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter, and against the hopes of just about everyone in the world, World War II broke out. And this is where Alabama got involved in establishing Veterans Day. Over 16 million Americans served in World War II. Sadly, estimates are that only about 240,000 of those veterans remain alive today and over 200 pass away every single day in the United States. We are quickly losing this treasured generation. One of those who served, in addition to my dad, was a man named Mr. Raymond Weeks from Birmingham, Alabama. 
Returning home to Birmingham after the war, Mr. Weeks felt that there should be a day to honor all veterans, not just those who had served in World War I. Thus, in 1947, Weeks organized what he called a National Veterans Day in Birmingham, which included a parade and other festivities to indeed honor all veterans. The events were held on November 11, 1947, with General Omar Bradley as the keynote speaker. It just so happened that Raymond Weeks was friends with General Dwight Eisenhower, pretty famous guy. And in 1954, through Mr. Weeks' efforts, Congress passed a bill that now President Eisenhower signed proclaiming November 11th as National Veterans Day. Many years later, on November 11th, 1982, President Ronald Reagan awarded Raymond Weeks the Presidential Citizens Medal calling him, quote, the driving force behind the congressional action which in 1954 established this special holiday as a day to honor all American veterans. Raymond Weeks passed away in 1985, but in 1989 a memorial to him was placed in Lynn Park near the Birmingham City Hall honoring him as the founder of National Veterans Day. And that's your first Alabama history lesson for the day. There'll be more though. Unfortunately, as we all know, wars continued after World War II. Over 5.7 million American veterans would serve in the Korean War, but only about 500,000 of them are alive today. It's pretty incredible. And about 600 Korean War veterans pass away every single day in the United States. Those veterans would later be joined by over 8.7 million veterans of the war in Vietnam, and around 6.1 million of them are alive today. They, in turn, would be joined by over 2.3 million veterans of Operation Desert Storm in the early 1990s. About 1.7 million of them are alive today. And finally, about 3.8 million veterans have served in what we have come to call the global war on terrorism in places such as Iraq and Afghanistan, and the vast majority of them are still alive today. Many of those veterans are familiar with the verse that we just heard from the Old Testament that goes like this. I'll repeat it again. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Many in uniform look to that specific verse in Isaiah 6-8 for a sense of affirmation that their service in uniform is not only justified, but also morally and religiously worthy. But for many of us who served in uniform, we know in our hearts that there is a balancing act to our service, and it often plays out in religious terms. Let me try to explain, at least in how I view that balancing act. The Methodist Church teaches that war is contrary to the spirit, teaching, and purpose of Jesus Christ. From the Methodist Book of Discipline come the following words, quote, War and peace. We believe war is incompatible with the teachings and example of Christ. We therefore reject war as an instrument of national foreign policy. As disciples of Christ, we are called to love our enemies, seek justice, and serve as reconcilers of conflict. There's another side. Even Jesus recognized there's a flip side to this entire fundamental principle. 
from Luke 7, chapters 1 through 10, as he was dying on the cross, Jesus did not condemn the centurion or even Pontius Pilate himself for being part of the military. Instead, as we read in John 19, verses 10 through 11, Jesus simply reminded Pilate that he had received his entire authority from a greater power and always remained accountable to that greater power. As Methodists, we also recognize that there is more to the story of military service than a simple abhorrence of war. And I hope that that is a balancing act that every person in uniform remembers while they serve. Again, turning to the Methodist Book of Discipline, there is this excerpt. Quote, Military service. We deplore war and urge the peaceful settlement of all disputes among nations. We also acknowledge that many Christians believe that when peaceful alternatives have failed, the force of arms may regrettably be preferable to unchecked aggression, tyranny, and genocide. We honor the witness of pacifists who will not allow us to become complacent about war and violence. We also respect those who support the use of force, but only in extreme situations and only when the need is clear beyond reasonable doubt. Good words. So how do we as veterans reconcile these sometimes morally conflicting choices involved in military service and even war? I try to think of it in these terms. The Christian veteran does not necessarily condemn the use of every kind of force, but refuses to employ force unaccountably or to wantonly destroy others. Moreover, the Christian veteran certainly does not justify every war, but reluctantly recognizes that violence, even deadly force, may be used, for example, when authorized to defend against aggression, to protect the innocent victim, or to restrain or replace a notorious and tyrannical despot. My favorite passage in the entire Bible we heard earlier, and it comes from Mark 8:36, and I'll repeat it again. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I try to think of that biblical reminder in just about everything I do. I really do. And I often used it when contemplating my own military service. I honestly think it embodies the balancing act that every veteran has probably encountered, especially during times of war. The church clearly upholds the right of individual members to conscientiously engage in that moral and religious balancing act when it comes to military service and offers pastoral support to those on all sides of the topic, as it should. Again, a section from the Book of Discipline explains, quote, we also support and extend the church's ministry to all persons. This includes those who conscientiously choose to serve in the armed forces or to accept alternative service. When persons choose to serve in the armed forces, we support their right to adequate care for injuries suffered and advocate for sufficient resources to meet their physical and mental health needs, both during and after their service. We are aware that we can become guilty both by military action and by conscientious objection, and that we are all dependent on God's forgiveness. 
I'd like to next talk about how that particular pastoral support is significant to those who serve in uniform. Military chaplains, as was mentioned before, are an important, I would argue, vital part of the U.S. military. I know that your own senior pastor, Reverend Arthur Harrison, is on extended military duty right now with the U.S. Army Chaplain Corps. Chaplains such as him can often remind us military members and veterans of our moral compass, as a couple of lessons from history can remind us. And I'm trying to give you several history lessons today. One of those stories is a little-known Alabama story that goes all the way back to the 1860s that I'd like to share with you. During the Civil War, both the Union and Confederacy established prisoner of war camps. They were almost always horrible places full of disease and death. For example, during a period of 14 months in infamous Camp Sumter, located near Andersonville, Georgia, 13,000, or 28% of the population of 45,000 Union soldiers confined died there. This horrifying track record was not limited to the southern side, however. For example, Elmira Prison in New York State on the Union side had a death rate of 25%, very nearly equaling that of Andersonville. There was one exception on both sides to these horrifying statistics, however, and it happened right here in Alabama. And it was all thanks to a Methodist minister. The Confederates established Cahaba Prison in the spring of 1863 in an unfinished red brick warehouse on the west bank of the Alabama River in Cahaba, then the seat of Dallas County in Alabama. The town owned its, owed its name to the Cahaba River, which looped around the northern side of the town before emptying to the Alabama River. By the way, Cahaba is now only a ghost town near Selma, thanks to those rivers and the constant flooding that it, that it endured. The town was abandoned long ago, but you can actually still visit there and walk around the, the ghost town of Cahaba. The Confederate Army, perhaps surprisingly, assigned a Methodist minister as the commandant of Cahaba Prison. His name was the Reverend Howard Henderson. Henderson certainly understood both sides of the raging war. Though a true Southerner, he had graduated from Ohio Wesleyan University and studied law at the Cincinnati Law School. Preferring the church to law, he became a Methodist minister after graduation. Henderson was determined to run Cahaba Prison with as much compassion as military discipline and good order permitted. And during his command, Cahaba Prison had a death rate of only 2%, by far the lowest of any Civil War POW camp, north or south. This was not an easy job. Quarters were cramped for the POWs at Cahaba Prison. In March 1864, there were 660 prisoners at Cahaba, a third of whom had to sleep on the dirt floor of the warehouse for lack of bunks. In addition, a polluted water supply posed a grave health threat. In response to the prison surgeon's complaint about the unsanitary water, Commandant Henderson had pipes installed to replace an open ditch, which gave the prisoners clean water to drink. But logistics soon grew, soon grew even worse at Cahaba Prison, and the population of the prison grew to over 2,000 by October 1864. 
Reverend Henderson, however, tried to think outside the box when it came to the worsening situation. For example, he worked with a local civilian, Mrs. Amanda Gardner, whose home stood just outside Cahaba Prison. Though Gardner was also a thorough rebel who had already lost a son in the war and believed in the righteousness of the Southern cause, she also abhorred brutality. Gardner did far more for the prisoners than simply protest cruel punishment. Soon after the prison opened, she began sending gifts of food, which her young daughter Belle slipped through cracks in the stockade wall with the help of friendly guards and a frankly sympathetic Commandant Henderson. When winter came, Gardner took up every single carpet in her house and cut them into blankets to, in her words, quote, relieve the suffering of those poor prisoners. Gardner also lent the prisoners books from her large collection. Prisoners only had to send a note by a guard to Amanda Gardner in order to borrow a book from the Gardner Library. The mental effect that Gardner's books had in alleviating boredom, which could sap a prisoner's will to live, surely contributed to the low death rate at Cahaba Prison. A final factor favoring survival was the prison hospital, located in a nearby two-story hotel that Reverend Henderson had commandeered to serve both guards and prisoners. There were never quite enough cots to go around, but the medical personnel in the hospital treated Confederates and Northerners with equal consideration. For many years after the Civil War, Reverend Henderson, the unlikely commandant of Cahaba Prison, was honored by both Confederates and the Union soldiers who had been his prisoners in honor of his compassion. Though sadly, his story seems to have now largely been lost to history. His story, however, can still remind us of that passage from the book of Mark. For what shall it profit a man if he, sh if he shall gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? For those who serve in the military, they generally ignore the de denominations of their military clergy and simply refer to those clergy as chaplain. They understand that military chaplains are there to serve all of them. There is another poignant story, this one from World War II, that illustrates this ecumenical spirit better than anything that I can think of. The U.S. transport ship Dorchester was carrying 902 people, both military and civilian, from Newfoundland to Greenland in February of 1943. These were dangerous times. Four of those aboard the, the Dorchester were army chaplains of various fates on their way to the European War Theater. The four included a Methodist minister, George L. Fox, Jewish rabbi Alexander D. Good, Dutch reform minister Clark V. Poling, and Catholic priest John P. Washington, all with the rank of army lieutenant. Let me tell you a little bit more about each one of these chaplains. Reverend George L. Fox had already served in World War I as a medic, even though he had to lie about his age to sign up for service. For his service in Europe with the Ambulance Corps, he was awarded the Silver Star, the Purple Heart, and the French Croix de Guerre, one of their highest awards. After World War I, he went home to finish high school, then college, and then became a Methodist minister in 1934. He rejoined the military as a chaplain in 1942 
and at the same time, his son Wyatt also signed up with the Marine Corps. Rabbi Alexander D. Good was the son of a rabbi and became one himself after graduating from college. He went on to earn a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University. Rabbi Good also founded a mixed-race, mixed-faith Boy Scout troop. He entered the Army as a chaplain in 1942. Reverend Clark V. Poling was the son of a Baptist minister. He was ordained in the Dutch Reformed Church in 1936 and joined the Army soon after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Father John P. Washington felt called to the Catholic priesthood at an early age. He sang in the choir and served as an altar boy before completing his education. He was ordained in 1935. Washington was also appointed in the army shortly after the Pearl Harbor attack. Unfortunately, there were also German U-boats in the water in February 1943 when the Dorchester was making its transit across the Atlantic. A German torpedo hit the ship instantly killing dozens of men and knocking out all communications aboard the ship. The ship sank in 20 minutes. That is when the four chaplains went to work. Each immediately went to tend the wounded, rescue those trapped, encourage the frightened, and pray for them all. The evacuation was frankly chaotic. Although American rescue ships moved in, many men jumped into lifeboats or rafts. The chaplains all helped out, handing life vests, but there weren't enough to go around. When the supply ran out, each chaplain took off his own vest and gave it to another man. As the overcrowded lifeboats moved away from the sinking ship, witnesses saw the four chaplains with their arms linked, saying prayers as the Dorchester went down into the icy waters. All four of the chaplains perished. Even today, the story of the four chaplains is commemorated in foundations and organizations, chapels and sanctuaries, and various memorials such as scholarships, parks, sculptures, shrines, stamps, and stained glass to illustrate the value of military chaplains, and more importantly, how different faiths can work together for the greater good. Today, as never before, we must pray for God's help in broadening and deepening the relative peace we enjoy today. Let us also pray for freedom and justice and a more stable world so that we avoid the moral and religious dilemmas that war inevitably presents. And as we approach Veterans Day, I hope that you will join me in prayers for all of those who have served or are still serving in the military and their families. Thank you all for allowing me to share just a few minutes with you this morning. May God bless you all.